ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. I'm delighted to say I've been joined by Matteo Ascaripor, the author of Black Buck Already, a New York Times bestseller. Matteo, hello. How are you? Nice to see you. Nice to see you as well, Simon. Thanks for having me. I should say that I, um, I'm in vision. I can see Matteo. Uh, Matt is uh, out of vision because his laptop is so ancient that if we actually oh, saw him, so annoying. the audio <laughs> would disappear. We're actually going to have a whip round. I think, just to see if we can get something that's not <laughs> 10 years What What old. is going to happen is I'm going to, from now on, use my teenage son's laptop because clearly my laptop is is dying. It's, it's dead. It really should have been chucked out of my loft window when the last podcast we did uh, was scuppered by it. So uh, from right. now on, I'm commandeering. My son won't be able to play Call of Duty uh, because I will be doing this podcast. Now, just before we started, uh, there was a, like a rushing sound, and I just thought it was like interference somewhere. But where are you, Matteo? Are you uh, your New York? I think is that right? Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, I'm in Brooklyn. Okay, in Brooklyn, and I thought it was like just like rushing wind somewhere between here and there. Anyway, it was your aircon which you've had to turn off, which is which is like fine for ten minutes. But how hot is it outside? You know, how bad is this going to get for you? Um, it's not going to get too bad because the, the sun isn't shining too intensely right now. I, I can't calculate it to Celsius, but it's probably about 85 here. And in New York, you know, 85 could be swampish. Uh, so the rushing is gone. We're on a countdown until I start sweating all (laughs) over myself and you might hear a train outside, but, uh, welcome to New York. Okay. Well now, um, uh, I think the cover, uh, Matt, describe the cover because I think this is one of the most striking and appealing covers that we've had this year. Uh, t- tell us what we're looking at here, man. It is. It's a great cover. So we've got, uh, so it's on a on a gold background. And um, uh, Matteo, you've got that right behind you as well, which is great. And it's it's a hand holding a uh, black coffee cup, but the sort of takeaway coffee cup. Uh, the coffee cup itself is black. And then in uh, multicolored, uh, we have the title uh, Black Buck, Black Buck with the L replaced by the uh, Empire State Building, uh, New York Times bestseller uh, on the top. And uh, Mateo's name right at the bottom as well. Um, but yes, really striking cover. Anyway, so that, that's kind of that's kind of where we are. I imagine that's the same cover because sometimes it's different between the US and the UK. Is that the same cover that you have? I think it is, judging by the look of your bookshelves. Yeah, so the book that you see behind me is the same exact cover. And, you know, this this cover, when it was sent to me, at first I didn't like it. 
and it had to grow on me. And uh, I did realize that it is striking, as you both said, and would be recognizable again and again if someone saw it once. So when we um, sold the book to John Murray Press over there in the UK, uh, I was looking forward to even a different cover because I thought, you know, new new country where the book's coming out, new cover. But they were just so taken by it that they said, we're going to keep it the same. And coincidentally or ironically, this cover was designed by a studio out in the UK anyway. Oh, okay. So it came full circle. So why, why, why didn't you like it to start with? <laughs> well, um, I'm not sure if folks in the UK are familiar with uh, a young children's cartoon called Little Bill. But that's the person that came to okay. mind. This this show, Little Bill, and just the the pastel Easter egg like colors jumping off. I thought that the book would read for a younger audience based on the cover. Um, and then my my editor said, "Okay, we're going to send you a, a dummy copy." And for those who don't know, a dummy copy is basically um, a fake book that's cut in the same trim size as what my book would eventually look like in person with a printed cover on the front. And I said, no, 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 I'm good. You don't need to send that. They said it's already in the mail. They sent it to me and I said, okay, like this does pop out. I put it on one end of my apartment and I live in Brooklyn. So you get a little bit more space for your dollar than in a place like Manhattan. So I stood, I stood, uh, you know, 10 or 15 feet away from it. And I said, okay, this is the one. If someone sees this in a bookstore window, it is going to jump out at them in the same way that the Nickel Boys did for me when I was at Gatwick Airport once. Um, so yeah, I'm happy that we went with it. Uh, and speaking of Colson Whitehead, the fact that, um, I've got the press release here. The fact that uh, Underground Railroad was for me my favorite book of the last five years. I just thought it was utterly uh, extraordinary. Wow. And on the top of the press release, it says, Matteo Ascaripor closes, there's a quote from Colson Whitehead, closes the deal on the first page of this mesmerizing novel, executing a high wire act full of verve and dark comic energy. And that sold it for me. There you go on, uh, on one quote. So that's going to, that must have I'm never going to get over that, Simon. Yeah, I mean, that must have meant, <laughs> to get a quote from Colson Whitehead must have been astonishing. Oh my God, I couldn't. Believe it. This whole this whole game of getting and giving quotes is one of the most nerve-wracking parts of the process. There are many people who want to give you a quote but can't find the time. There are people who say they will, but then things get in their way, as as I can completely understand now being on the other side. So when this came through from a two-time Pulitzer winner, but one whose work I revere and love, Colson Whitehead. I'm getting giddy just thinking about it again. <laughs> okay, so it, it occurs to me that we've done, we've talked about that. We talked about the cover and the quotes, and people will be thinking, okay, fine. Can you tell us just a little bit about, <laughs> you know, what the book is about? So uh, th this seems to be a good point to do it. So tell us about Black Buck. Um, who is he? Uh, and introduce us to the world that you've created here, Mateo. Definitely. So Black Buck is about a young man named Darren. He's 22 and living in a brownstone, uh, which is, I don't, I don't know what you would call them over there if you call them brownstones. It's just like a three-story um, home in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, which is part of New York City. 
He has his caring mother, his loving girlfriend, his best friend, and his neighborhood, and his neighborhood has him. Now, Darren is also working at a Starbucks in Midtown Manhattan, so across the bridge and a few miles away from where he, where he lives and, and grew up. And one day, this suave, good-looking white CEO named Rhett Daniels comes in. You know, he looks like you a little bit, Simon. And oh, uh, he comes oh, in. Right. <laughs> he comes in. And, and, he, and, he, and he, says, he says, give me my regular. But for some reason, Darren says no, and he sells him on another drink. So Rhett, impressed, invites him up to the 36th floor and extends an invite to Darren for him to join his elite sales team. At first, Darren says no, but then he reluctantly agrees and soon finds out he's not the only black salesman there. He's the only black person in the entire company. So he goes through hell and back in order to make it to the top. And once he's there, he has power, status, money. But he says, you know what? I don't want to be the token black guy. So he hatches a plan to help other people of color infiltrate America's tech startup sales teams and then the world's redefining what it means to be a minority in the workplace. Now, I, you know, when I read the book, I took against Rhett Daniels, but now I'm kind of reinterpreting <laughs> my, my assessment. And maybe he's the, he's the heart. Just, just before we get on to the other stuff that you say there, Rhett Daniels normally orders, and I quote here from your book, a vanilla sweet cream cold brew. Is that, mm. is that actually a thing? Can you actually order that? Oh, yeah, you definitely can. So for me, I didn't have to do any research into the world of sales and startups because I lived that myself. But I had no idea about Starbucks. In my life, my 29 years of life, I've probably had three cups of coffee ever. (laughs) It's not my thing. So I had to do research. Yeah. That's just weird. You've had three cups of coffee in your life. That's that's maybe my entire life. Three to four full cups ever. It's not my thing. Well, okay. All right. Anyway, so far we're getting, so we're getting distracted. Okay. So, so Darren, it's interesting. When you were describing Darren as twenty-two, he's a barista. He has a girlfriend. He has supportive families in a nice place. He has mates. He's he's happy. Why why would he want to step away from that into something else? That is. Um one of the biggest questions in the book, especially at the beginning, you know, a lot of folks say, uh, Mateo, Darren was so underachieving. Why, why, if he was valedictorian, the head of his class of uh, an esteemed and prestigious public high school in the States, would he have not gone on to done something more? So we see the nature of success and opportunity being thrown into question. Darren is comfortable. And he, he, like you said, has his loving girlfriend and, and his supportive mother and all things are going well. He's content. But there is a larger question that Rhett proposes to him of what are you doing with your life? Which is a question that I think sometimes we ask, but maybe not often enough. Why are we here? So when that question is presented to him so directly and he knows he's had his mother in his ears for years saying, Darren, I want you to be more. He sees in the eyes of his girlfriend that she wants him to be more as well. Then... He, he actually jumps in and chases this, this definition of success that he didn't have before to, let's say, varying consequences. And, and Matteo, when he does go chasing this, this new definition and he goes to work in sales, I have to say that was the point where I, I realized, well, I realized two things as I, was, as I was reading that. One is that I don't have the skill set to work in sales. And the second is That's that true. I would never, ever, ever want to work in sales True. um and it it was the, the the things that he is asked to do the the sort of the 
even just the the attitude within that room uh, of um, of the other employers and employees towards him, um, as far as dealing in sales is concerned, it was it, it's completely anathema to me. You, you've already hinted at this, uh, Matteo, but I just want to just explore a little bit more with you. Background in sales is sales something that you are drawn to? Is is sales something you've done? Is it was it something you enjoyed? Mm, so. Um, I think it's important to note that while all forms of sales do have common denominators, they're not all the same. So the world that you're introduced to in this book of of someone, the name of the startup, um, is a very specific type of sale that's typically being made over the phone for software as a service type uh, platforms and products. And we have to also think about the place that it takes place in, you know, New York City. Not to say that there aren't similar environments. I, I mean, I've seen the uh, the UK show industry. So I know that uh, things get mm-hmm. wild in, in other places as well. Um, but it is a very specific type of place and a very specific type of sale. And, and startups in, in general um, often have young people who want to change the world. Um, now, in terms of my own background, yes, that was me. That, that, I mean, I am not Darren and uh, it feels weird to have to say that, but we do have similarities. And I was 21, 22 who had fallen into this world of sales. I was working at a startup and uh, months into being there, the CEO said, you know, we should, as any startup would monetize. And he had heard things about young me and he tapped me to start the sales team with him. And I had no idea what I was doing. So it was very much so sink or swim. I was almost fired many times. I wasn't some prodigy who picked up a phone and then closed a million dollar deal. You know, I had people on the other end of the line intimidating me, laughing at me, hanging up on me, but I made it through. And the company grew from about 20 to 230 or so people in two years. The sales team grew from me to 90. And then here I was 24 years old, managing 30 people um, and making over six figures. So I was drawn to the world of sales. I was successful in my own roles, at least in varying ways. I had my own failures and pitfalls and things that I had to learn from and process later on. Um, But when it comes down to it, I believe that we are all to a certain extent selling. Right, even this podcast right now, you you discussing Matt your perspective on the book or the fact that you can never work in sales. I believe that that is a form of sales in and of itself, and that some of the biggest movements or all the greatest civil rights movements in our in our world in history were led by salespeople. I saw um, Wendell Pierce in Death of a Salesman just before uh, all the theaters shut um, mm-hmm. in London, and at that point, I see. I mean, complete agree with Matt. I just thought. That whole world of being a salesman, as conventionally defined, as opposed to your broader definition, uh, was just something that I don't get. But I I just want to go a little bit further into that because the book um, has uh, the feeling of a sales manual. You've written it with various kind of uh, little, what, kind of bon mots, little kind of, I don't know if it's parody or whether this is proper sales advice. So the first one I've come to here, page 115. Contrary to popular belief, fairness has no place in sales. It's not a meritocracy. Every salesperson comes into the game with a different set of advantages and disadvantages, but it's knowing how to double down on what makes you special that will help you get ahead. Now, is that, how do I read that? Is that useful to the plot or is that a proper bit of sales advice? It's a proper bit of sales advice. So all of those direct addresses to the reader and for for the listeners, right? If you don't have the book, then you haven't seen it. It's basically... Uh, um, a bolded paragraph that says reader. And then there is an adage, 
or some type of advice following it, and it's set apart from the paragraphs coming before and after it. These are direct addresses where Darren, who is renamed as Buck, who is actually the quote-unquote author of the book, is directly addressing the reader through breaking the fourth wall, sort of like in House of Cards or, you know, Fleabag, something like that. Um, I wanted the book to feel as though it was a sales manual. You're right, Simon, and I'm happy that it, it, it felt like that for you. And at the same time, in order to achieve that, these direct addresses to the reader had to be sales advice that would resonate with people who you know sales, but could also double as life advice. So for those who don't even you know, know anything about sales, that it could potentially resonate with them as well. Um, that right there, that piece of advice is very true. For me, in my own life, I found that my energy more than anything else was my superpower. So if I were to pick up a phone and call someone halfway across the country or even halfway across the world, if I could engage them with my energy and not exactly what I was saying, but how I was saying it within the first 10 seconds, they would stay on longer and then I would hopefully be more successful. So that's just in the case of me, but I believe that we all have our own superpowers and, and should, should not only accept, but embrace them. When you, when you first met your publishers and your editors, they must have thought, Within thirty seconds, we're we're going to be we're going to be good here because your ability, <laughs> you know, you're you're like you say you're selling. Yeah, that's what that's what you're doing, and you sell uh, your book fantastically better than better than most authors. You sometimes just struggle to kind of uh, put it all together in a neat couple of sentences. Can you just explain a little bit about how Buck slash Darren finds it working in this? company, which is called Someone. It's the startup that you, uh, that you mentioned. And you, you said he's the only black person in a, in a very white company. Mm-hmm. Just explain a little bit about the world that you created for us there. Well, there's, there's levels to it. I mean, there's psychological warfare employed from the beginning, from when he first meets Rhett um, at Starbucks to a quote-unquote fake interview by, by um, the director of sales, a uh, young white man named Clyde. And it it is the type of environment where you see it being run by young people. And by young people, I'm talking about people who are 24, 25, you know, maybe at most they're 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 28 or so. The CEO is about 34, 35. Um, there's a lot of money being tossed around. People are being paid a lot. There are dogs, there are scooters, there is intense partying. There's this, there's this ethos of we are the chosen ones. We are changing the world and we have been tasked with this mission. It is very colonial in some ways, uh, very manifest destiny-like. And I've seen that myself. So it's charged with this atmosphere of young people with kinetic energy saying that we are the ones and we will do whatever it takes to win. Now, when Darren gets in, he sees it as a challenge. At first, he's reluctant. Then he gets in and he sees it as a challenge to prove himself. And he's he's being put through the ringer. His blackness is weaponized against him. You don't belong. And part of this is because the character of Clyde, it's not just that he's racist, which he is, but he's hurt as well, you know, to present him as a three-dimensional human. He's also hurt because his mentor, Rhett, has now chosen this other guy who he believes will help, you know, bring the company uh, prestige and, and, and everything else they need to win. So at first, Darren feels like an outsider, 
But we see him gradually, especially during his first week there, being immersed, immersed into the church of someone until months later, he is an acolyte. He is a leader and he is in what we would now call the sunken place, which is the, the phrase that we've received from get out. He's lost. I, I, I want to explore that more, uh, Matteo, um, because for me, that is where the book really came alive, is when, as, mm. you've, as you've just said, when um, his, 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 the, his skin colour is weaponized against him, um, culminating when he, at one point, when he, he, I think it's when he first takes, when he first sits down in the company <laughs> and they tip yeah. paint. And they tip paint over him, um, and, but there are but there are thousands of other uh, aggressions that happen in there. Of as you say, this this um, uh, superior who talks to him or, or uses sort of mock patois against him uh, when he's trying he's trying to provoke him. He's he's basically trying to make. Uh, he, he's trying to make Darren walk out. That's what he, he's he's basically trying to make this guy mm-hmm. uh, say say things as racist as he can, so that Darren will get up and walk out, as you say, because he's angry that his boss has 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 showed an interest in in Darren. I, I'm also intrigued by the fact that um, the within this company, which I'm going to say again, oh my god, I never want to work in a company <laughs> like that. But anyway, um, but but. The, the, the fact that you chose to have sort of conference rooms named after um, sacred scriptures, so in in Hindu or in there's, there's, it jumps out straight straight away when you have you know a conference room named Quran, and you're like, really? Is that so? What what, what was the thinking that I because it, it it just jumped out at me straight, it leapt off the page. I mean, this um, oftentimes I, I hesitate to discuss the parallels to reality, right? Because this book, while, you know, containing parts of my experience, isn't a blow-by-blow of my own history. And I, and I want to be clear of that. But then the naming of conference rooms, this is something that many startups do. They name conference rooms around themes or motifs that are central to their product or their organization or their mission. So with someone, what they are selling is access to a platform whereby individuals can connect with people around the world in a sort of of informal version of therapy. So for example, if folks are in the UK and they're meeting with UK-based or trained psychologists that can't really reach through to them with this Western type of thinking, perhaps they can connect with someone who is uh, a follower of Hinduism in India or so forth. So that's what they are selling. And because these informal therapists that they call assistants hail from around the world and follow different religions and philosophies and ways of life, they say, let us impart that uh, within our own office on these different different um, conference rooms and so forth, just to really beat home this culture. But what we see in the book and what I've seen in my own life is that there is a fine line between cult and culture. How much of this did you work out as you went along? How much had you planned and targeted? And so the book ends in a very specific place, which is not where the book starts. And I wondered how much of that you had, um, you know, you'd mapped out before you started. Well, real quick, what did it feel like to you? Did it feel like everything was outlined from A to, I guess, Z, as you would say? Or? Um, I, I, I got the feeling that, and I just read the, the last couple of chapters today, I got the feeling that you knew where you were heading from where you started, but there was, you were making 
but you were surprised by some of the characters and some of the incidents that happened as you went along. So the, you knew where you were heading, but a lot of it was 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 fun in the creation. Oh, spot on. And it's music to my ears to hear that. I So from, from the first night, it was January 8th, 2018. I don't even write at night, but I was just, I knew that I was going to write a book like this. Um, the idea... Um, was in my head for a couple of months and I was refining it over and over and over again, even though I wasn't really writing things down. So January 8th at night, I wrote the author's note, which is largely unchanged today. And for, for the listeners, I need to let you know the author's note. Some people miss that it's signed by Buck and they think that I wrote it. And then they read this whole book like it's nonfiction. Um, it, it is fiction. <laughs> it is a novel. But from that first night, I knew about the big twist. And there are multiple twists, but I knew about the big twist at the end. However, I did not know how I was going to get there. I knew about the types of characters that I wanted and where it was going to be set, but I had to fill that in as I went along. And it might have been at most, I knew a week, maybe a week and a half, of what was going to take place later on during the writing process. But it was important for me to have this book be spontaneous, a spontaneous manifestation of sorts as I was writing it so that it would read that way. So that if I didn't know where it was going to go a month in advance, the reader might not know it's going to happen 20 or 30 pages, um, you know, moving forward. And that was to keep it engaging for me as the writer, uh, engaging for the reader. And I was really thinking, what could I do? How could I write this book in a way while staying true to my intentions, but that would keep someone who never reads books or only reads a book a year, finish it? from beginning to end and feel as though it was worth it. I just want to ask about um, about sales itself as well. And I, it's beginning to sound like I'm obsessed with sales. It and, is, actually. And, and my inability to do... It does, it does sound like that, doesn't it? But anyway, um, right. So his, his sort of stream of consciousness is... Right, Jordan Belfort, who is, uh, you know, main character in Wolf of Wall Street, loves how he's portrayed in Wolf of Wall Street and loves the movie, despite the fact that really, when you watch that, you're supposed to find this guy objectionable. Alec Baldwin will tell you that he's walked through countless hotel foyers and had um, (laughs) sales reps coming up to him and desperately trying to get him to recite uh, the ABC uh, dialogue from Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, Mm -hmm. even though, again... He is supposed to be this monstrous figure. Are we, are we supposed to see, Darren, when he is performing in this sales team, are we supposed to be on his side? Well, uh, that, that depends on your point of view. Um, there are people who say they hated Darren for 80% of the book. Then there are people who were rooting for him the whole time. I think it depends on who you are and what your own... Uh, values are for me. I was hoping what I what I hoped, right? And and I and I, I answered in the way that I did initially, not to be vague, but because I don't want to imprint too many of my own thoughts on readers, right? I, I look at this book as a mirror, and what someone sees is a reflection of themselves and where they're at in life. But going back to my intentions, I was hoping that it would be exciting. In the beginning, when Darren works at uh, someone, you know, when he when he when he rises above or works through, or maybe he never does, but he thinks that he does through all of the the racism and the hell week that he's put through. I, I was hoping that folks would root for him, so that when things took a shift, they would really feel it in their bones and their hearts more. Um, with that said. There are many people, many people of color, and specifically black people, who write to me and say. 
I knew this wasn't going to end well <laughs> from the beginning. So, so while, while I did want him to win, I've been in those scenarios and I was feeling anxious every step of the way. Then I have, I've had other people say this book triggered them um, because they had experienced things just like this. And then I've had people say, listen, I'm not Darren. I'm like a 65 year old white woman, but this book really resonated with me because I was the only woman on an executive team where you opened up my eyes to things. That is how I define success today. Yes, it's great being a New York Times bestseller. Yes, it's great, you know, potentially having a TV adaptation. But what gets me out of bed is knowing that this book is resonating with people in such a deep and profound way and that not everyone loves it. Do you, th- do you think that there'll be some people who read this, Matteo, who think, because there is a, there is a cost to Buck of his success, mm-hmm. that they'll read it and they'll think, well, you say be more, but maybe... Maybe you don't have to be more. Maybe mm-hmm. he was happy at the beginning. You know, what it, yeah. maybe, maybe it's not always, maybe you don't always have to be more. Yeah, well, there, there are many people who ask, and again, many black people who say, Mateo, did Buck have to lose himself in order to be successful? Or did Darren, excuse me, at this point, have to lose himself in order to be successful? And I say, no. But Darren did have to lose himself in order to be successful in this specific environment. It doesn't mean that he couldn't have gone somewhere else that celebrated who he was and thrived there. Um, But uh, again, this and the way that people perceive the book is just so relative to where they are in life. So people will look at Darren and I've had many people say, Mateo, this is blatantly a cautionary tale. No one should ever be like Darren. And I say, that's fair. I completely understand where you're coming from as well, because the cost that so many people have to pay of take it until I make it and that line being pushed and pushed and pushed to where they don't know where they stand on it is high for so many of us. And many of us don't want to or shouldn't be made to pay it. How are we doing on the heat stakes, by the way, Matteo? Because you turn the aircon off, we, we've hit wearing trains go past, <laughs> which is a lovely thing because that all adds to the audio picture. But how are you bearing up? I'm feeling cool as a cucumber. This this conversation is keeping me going. <laughs> okay. Don't make me don't make me focus on the heat, man. Come on. Now, the, now, if people are listening to this and wondering, you know, maybe they have a, a novel in them and maybe they can learn something from Matteo. Here's the thing. And obviously, as we've mentioned a number of times, there's no correct way to write a book. However, maybe we can learn from Matteo. Just explain a little bit about how you get yourself into your writing frame of mind, Matteo, because I have never met, in all the hundreds of authors that I've spoken to, I have never, ever come across someone who preps like you do. So tell us your routine. Oh, man. See, I didn't know if you knew my routine because I was going to say, I'm, I told myself as you were speaking, I'm not going to go into the whole thing. I'm not going to go into the whole thing. So, <laughs> Um, basically, and Matt, now you'll see that Simon wasn't being hyperbolic. Uh, so (laughs) it it begins the night before and I I simply tell myself that I'm going to write the next day, right? So that it's just set in my head that when I wake up, there's no if, and, or buts in the same way I'm going to take a shower in the same way I'm going to eat. I'm going to write. I wake up the next day and let me, let me, let me tell you as well, this was different in some ways when I was writing Black Buck. This was the gist, but I wasn't writing every day because I was consulting with tech startups across North America. Um, This was after I quit my job so that I could still make money and not be like a starving writer. But this was the gist. Um, I'd wake up the next day, I'd meditate, 
And after my meditation, I will shower, do the whole hygiene thing, and then I'll make a waffle. Back when I was writing Black Puck, I'd make three waffles from a company. I'm not going to give them free. Eh, whatever. They're called Vans. And uh, I'd make three <laughs> blueberry or apple cinnamon. Look at Simon keeping a straight face. Waffles with sunflower seed butter. I had a specific plate. I had a specific fork and knife. This was very Pavlovian. You know what I'm saying? I trained myself just like his dogs to know that this was going to be the time to write. I would eat eat these waffles and then I would make my drink of choice, which for you viewers can't see I have with me now, yerba mate. Yerba mate. Let's not get into it, but look into it. I wouldn't have been able to write three manuscripts. Black Book was the third manuscript. I wouldn't have been able to write three manuscripts without it. It's natural. It's nothing crazy. It's not a drug. Now, after doing that, I'm going to sit down to my computer and I'm going to watch two to three hours worth of music videos and movie trailers. This is real. I'm not making any of this up. Yes, to get inspired. I don't have any coach behind my back saying, Mateo, right, yes. I had to I had to get inspired. Now after that, I will after after that, there's 15 minutes of dancing. And then finally, after after the dancing. After the dancing, I I open up a digital folder called Inspiration, where where I stare into the eyes of people who inspire me. Um, Tony Morrison, Maya Angelou, Jean-Michel Basquiat, Fred, Ham- Fred Hampton, Malcolm X, even Dave Chappelle, people like that, or, uh, a late rapper named Nipsey Hussle. After this, I sit down and I'm ready to write, and I write. <laughs> now, you see... Outstanding. You see, Outstanding. Uh, budding writers, that's, that's where you're going wrong. It, and... The, the opening of that little speech, Mateo, is where you said, I, I begin the night before. I'm thinking, no. I mean, already. already. And I've, I'm halfway through a book at the moment, writing a book, and now I realize what I'm doing wrong. You know, if I'm struggling to hit the word, yeah. I need to it's start not, the night it's just, before. It's not... No, this isn't realistic. And, right, like, that's what worked for me, but I had to find that out. The first manuscript... I began writing that when I was working at this startup and I didn't know what was what. I've, I didn't study writing. I don't have my master's in fine art. So I was trying to emulate what I knew writers to be and do. So I would go to coffee shops in New York City. It eh, didn't work. I would try to write in beautiful libraries, New York Public Library. It eh, didn't work. I would try to write before work, after work. Didn't work. So this took me um, a year or so of practice and trial and error to figure out what worked to me. But what is most important, and Stephen King says this in his book on writing, which was helpful in my own journey, is you cannot Mm. come to the page um, without energy. You have to do whatever you can to cultivate that energy so that when you're writing, you have it coursing through you. So this is just what's worked for me. Um, I think what is also most important is for people to hone their voices by consuming as much art as possible. I know you didn't ask for advice, but you, but we're, we're discussing what could be helpful to uh, budding writers or, or artists in general. For me, I wrote those two manuscripts and it took those two manuscripts for me to find my voice, for me to realize the audience that I, that I had in mind, and for me to frankly not care all that much. Um, about the intended outcomes and just to write the book that I wanted for the people I wanted to reflect the nature of reality that I wanted. And fortunately, it worked out, but there is uh, an, an an alternative reality where I'm back at my parents' house in my childhood bedroom working on my eighth manuscript. Um, Mateo Ascaripo's book is Black Buck. Uh, I, uh, 
you're going to love it. If Colson Whitehead says he nails it in the first page, that is kind of all you need to know. Um, we will do our famous Q&A with Matteo on another podcast, which you can get where you got this podcast. Uh, but for now, Matteo, we appreciate your time very much. Thank you very much indeed. You can put the air con on. Well, actually, Super. we're going to do the Q&A in just a moment, but um, no, we appreciate your time. No, put the air con on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't. Thank you, Simon and Matt. Loved this. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, I'm Violet Manners, and welcome to Hidden Heritage, the podcast that brings you inside Great Britain's favorite destinations. From the same team that brought you the number one history podcast, Duchess, Hidden Heritage will uncover the fascinating stories behind the UK's brightest shining hidden gems. You'll hear from top experts in British heritage, including custodians, historians, artisans, experts, and even the craftsmen and restorers who've worked on some of the most celebrated historic buildings. We will share the untold and unique stories that celebrate UK heritage, from landmarks to architecture, artifacts to myths and legends. Hidden Heritage will highlight a side to British history you have never seen before. I'm your host, Violet Manners, and founder of Heritage X, and I invite you all to join us on this exciting journey. This is Hidden Heritage. You can find Hidden Heritage wherever you listen to your podcasts.